from WPVMLP in Asheville. It's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is The Coral. She wakes up, a lover undiscovered, brightens up the gray sky today. Look at her, how could I forgive her for making me give myself away? When she comes to me, it's like a song on the sea of time. any like garbage foods that you grew up with that you still occasionally pine for or just weird foods that you grew up with that you occasionally still pine for Mm, yes bugles bugles oh yeah the little the little conical um the crackers the witch fingertip the witch fingers yeah (laughs) i absolutely love them i and it's funny too because i i can't actively find them anymore they're a little you kind of got to go on a search in a convenience store or on a road trip for them um but man i miss them i would just wear them on my fingers all day long and then eat them one by one and freak people out and then i'd put on some more and (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was my grandmother always had bugles and Mm. i always loved those what about you? Did you ever dip them in anything? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, nacho cheese, uh, oh, definitely. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. We that never was, like, dipped the them in thing. anything. I remember like in college seeing someone dip bugles and being like, oh, they're yeah. for dipping. But it kind of makes sense because they go on your fingertips and you but dip them But they're also mini cornucopias. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're teeny tiny cornucopias. <laughs> it's decorative gourd season. <laughs> Oh, we are getting into decorative cord season. Um, that's the side route. Anyway, um, for me growing up, 
the, anytime my dad was traveling for work, it would be my mom would just make me steamed broccoli, steamed in the microwave with boxed macaroni and cheese and freezer fish sticks. And every now and then, probably like every three years, I'll be in the freezer aisle and be like, I think it's time for that old meal again. Oh, you yes. know? And it's <laughs> never as good as I remember it as a kid, but it is still like, you know, it warms a little spot in the heart. And, uh, yeah, you know, my mom would add the, the extra butter in and, you know, really, really mac up the mac and cheese and make it very unhealthy. But that that seemed like a special meal, like a really signified something different that was happening in the week, I feel like. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, speaking of underrated and weird foods, writer Adrienne Pion had an old family favorite pop up in her life recently. Um, It's a dish you might not expect in a place where it should certainly be expected. Like many women of mid 20th century America, my mother rode the French cooking wave. I can still see her, pots bubbling, one of Julia Child and Simone Beck's volumes of Mastering the Art of French Cooking propped open on the counter, a glass of wine at her elbow. There were dinner parties with elegant quiches and tiny Cornish game hens, or a leg of lamb. Tarragon chicken, too, was in her repertoire, and the house would fill with the sweet, earthy aroma of tarragon mingled with white wine. That chicken cooked until it fell off the bone, savory and sweet all at once. To me, her piece de resistance was pot au feu, a dish which translates as pot on the fire, with roots as prosaic as its name. I recall my mother spending at least two days over the stove, adding ingredients one at a time, browning meats, peeling odd vegetables, and doing mysterious things with cheesecloth and twine. The dish was a wonder. The night of the first pot au feu, friends came to eat and to drink, dipping bread into the endless bowls of meat and vegetables and broth. I don't think we ever left the dining table that night to retreat into the living room as usual, to sink into the couch and eat my mother's French vanilla parfait. Dessert was immaterial. The next time my mother made a pot au feu, I was away on a backpacking trip. When I returned, I was dismayed to discover it had all been eaten. My mother had saved a bit of the broth, though and carried a steaming cup to me in bed, where I lay, bone-tired. I cannot attempt to describe the complex and rare flavor of that broth, save that I was finally able to use the word ambrosia in a sentence. I had been exhausted and depleted and was now miraculously restored. There was one other thing that really set my mother's cooking apart, but it had nothing to do with Julia Child. It was that middle American, non-food staple, jello. Wobbling molds of emerald green or ruby red or sunshine yellow were a thing to behold. The jello was tart and sweet and delicious and refreshing all at once. Chunks of pineapple or mandarin oranges or grapes might be suspended inside. It was a minor excitement when the gelatin or jello or as we wrote on the shopping list and in kitchen notes, J-E-L-L-O arrived at the table. Of course, I didn't realize my mother's jello was anything special until I ate dinner at a friend's house one night. Everything at that meal came from a box, which felt exciting and novel. There was shake-and-bake chicken and hush puppies. I didn't know what either was, much to the amusement of my friend's southern-born parents. It was all tasty enough if unfamiliar. The sole item that was recognizable was dessert. A circular mold of plain cherry jello, topped exotically with whipped cream squirted from a can. I dug in. The collapse of sugar and air in my mouth was a huge letdown, and I was shocked at the watery, sweet, bland mass. I didn't recognize it as jello. I went home that night and reported on the dinner. My mother laughed when I told her about dessert. They must have followed the directions on the box, she said. There and then, she taught me to make real jello, the first order of business being to replace the water with another liquid. 
She substituted juice, threw in some chopped fruit, and voila! You could add cream, she told me, or greens, or wine, or whatever might work. I was floored. I hadn't known that recipes were guidelines, useful as inspiration instead of strict rules or gospel. Clearly, my mother enjoyed the inventiveness of it all. When she was young, her goal was to be a hospital dietitian, but was told that such a career was not for girls because it entailed science. Instead, she became a reading teacher, and cooking became an avocation. Her experimentation came naturally and proved invaluable during a period of my father's unemployment when the days of Cornish game hens gave way to Campbell's beef soup with barley, or what my brother and I termed beef with barf. My mother clipped coupons and hunted down bargains, yet fed us well. I once watched her stretch a single can of soup into a stylish dinner for four. Leftover vegetables, a cup of wine, some water, and a bouillon cube transformed the soup. A loaf of toasted day-old bread and some good cheese bought on sale rounded out the meal. And when I was sick, as I often was in childhood, my mother made soups from chicken bones, backs, and necks bubbled in a satisfying cauldron. There were hot toddies with honey, hot water, and a touch of brandy. And there was always jello. Easy on the stomach, easy to infuse with juice for extra vitamin C. That was then. I don't know if anyone eats jello much anymore. And I don't really consider it food, though there might be a box somewhere in the back of the pantry, just in case. Recently, however, I did eat two entire bowls of the stuff. I cannot tell you what flavor it was other than red, because I was given a choice of green, yellow, or red. I had to eat it or I wasn't allowed to leave the hospital, where I'd just had emergency surgery. My nurse, Nathan, was kind, except he wouldn't bend on the eating thing. He tried to get me to have a sandwich and all manner of other food, but I couldn't stomach anything after the operation and the drugs, which made me feel floaty and pain-free, but not at all hungry. Jello, however, isn't quite solid food, and when Nathan offered it as an option, I said yes. I ate that jello, every bit of it, and then a second helping, not just because I had to or that it tasted great, but because with each bite, I kept thinking I'd get to that flavor, a hint that someone had taken a moment to make that jello special, to provide comfort through that bowl of wobbly red mess. It looked like childhood to me. In my haze and anxiety that day, I hopefully imagined someone down in the hospital kitchen, someone like my mother, mixing up the jello while ignoring the recipe on the box, and instead slipping in a cup of juice, and with it a dash of care, a measure of love. That was Audrey Weiss reading Adrienne Pion's Love in the Art of Jello. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
You can see the ring of darkness Covering up the light But to see it is to admit That it's just passing by My friend in New York City She calls me time and time And I tell her made up stories But never tell her lies And the weight of my heart Swings me left to right Like a wrecking ball on a six foot chain Forever all my life It only goes to show Sweet misery You can follow me down to the end of my path But you still gotta get through me Talking to go sit down by your lonesome and entertain the fool. I was late to the party and I'm meeting someone's food, but I've never been so hungry to be without a clue. It only goes to show sweet misery. You can follow me down to the end of my path But you still gotta get through me Yeah, you can follow me down to the end of my path But you still gotta get through me to the Dirty Spoon on the radio, you might not know about all the extra goodies we pack into our podcast stream. During the pandemic, we did a show about the lockdown called Home Fried. We also have a series called Second Helpings that features extended interviews with some of our favorite guests on the show. And sometimes John releases special reports on things like his recent piece on the restaurant labor shortage. This past month, we did a deep dive on fermentation in partnership with food festival Chow Chow that featured everyone from the world's largest organic miso maker, to the owner of French Broad Chocolates, J.L. Skeffington. Did you know that chocolate is actually a fermented food? Well, if you'd like to hear that entire show, just look for our podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts by searching for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, or you can head to our website, dirty-spoon.com. In creating that episode, John had a great conversation with J.L., and we thought it might be nice to hear the rest of their chat. French Broad Chocolates is a company that puts their money where their mouth is in a great many ways, sourcing chocolate directly from the farmers in many cases, sourcing fair trade ingredients, living wage certified, I could go on. As a co-owner of the company, Jail is someone who has intimately seen where her chocolate comes from, knows the people who make it, and knows the places where it grows. And she wants to take particular care of those things and people. Here's John's conversation with her. He started out by asking her where chocolate comes from. Chocolate comes from a tropical evergreen tree called Theobroma cacao. Theobroma translates um, from Latin as food of the gods. And so it's always been imbued with a lot of meaning and ritual and culture um, since, since its early days in Aztec and Mayan ancient history. Um, so the, the plant is this super weird um um, tree the, that um, grows these big kind of Nerf football sized pods. And within the pods, you find rows of seeds. Um, they're about the size and shape of an almond. And they're covered in this white, slimy fruit. The fruit is 
delicious. It really doesn't taste like chocolate. It tastes like kind of guava, banana, mango, just kind of this tropical fruit mashup. Um, It's super tasty. And, but it's just this like thin covering on the seed. And so it's, it's like, if you open up the pod, you find these rows of seeds. If you pull off a seed, you can kind of stick one in your mouth and um, kind of suck the fruit off. But the seed itself at this point, which is the raw material for chocolate is pretty gross. It's Hmm. really bitter. um, It's acidic. It's astringent. Like you just kind of want to spit it out when you put it in your mouth. And that's, um, you know, almost kind of Michael Pollan um, speaking. It's almost like adapting to um, like uh, perpetuation of the species uh, because the 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 fruit re- relies on intervention to um, propagate. Huh. But anyway, this disgusting bitter seed um, is covered in this lovely fruit, and um, the fruit is actually the medium for fermentation. So it's not technically this chocolate that is fermented, it's the fruit that is fermenting. And then the the acids and enzymes from that fermentation process of the fruit penetrate the seed and transform it. Uh, It transforms their color, transforms the consistency, and most importantly to us who enjoy chocolate, it transforms the flavor and begins to develop the flavor precursors that we think of and know as chocolate. But that fermentation step is, it's basically the most important um, contributing factor to chocolate flavor. If we don't have well-fermented beans, we do not have amazing chocolate. Huh. So the people that you guys are buying from, like, what is their process for fermenting? Like, how do they ferment So the the process is really low tech. Um, Cacao grows 20 degrees north and south of the equator. So it's in the tropics. It's very hot and humid by necessity. It's got to be that climate for the, for the plant to thrive. Yeah. Um, It's the, the pods are harvested when they're ripe and then they're cut open usually with a machete or sharp metal object um, to open up, reveal the seeds and fruit within, you kind of scoop out all of that mass, the fruit and seeds together. And usually it's just chucked and collected in buckets. Um, then once you have a critical mass of material, it takes a lot, um, to, to properly ferment. Um, you know, like if you think about compost, you need enough material, um, to, to successfully ferment it. Um, And and for that reason, a lot of cacao um, fermentation happens in, in group, um, in community. So a lot of times it's cooperatives or associations or a business that's buying from a lot of small farmers. Um, So once you get that massive material, um, it's all put into large wooden boxes. I would say maybe like five feet um, cube wooden boxes. And um, it generally takes five to seven days um, to go through the fermentation process. And there's kind of an anaerobic phase and an aerobic phase. So you put the mass into a box. After a day, um, you move it to the next box. That kind of like aerates it, adds oxygen, um, and and then you leave it in the next box um, for a day. Um, And then the next box for a day. So generally there's three kind of turns um, and the, the last turn, you might leave it for a day or two, depending on the fermentation level. Um, it's generally covered um, to encourage, you know, the buildup of heat um, produced in the fermentation process. Um, and it's, it's tested usually um, in a very dramatic sounding um, piece of equipment called a guillotine, um, where <laughs> you put um, like a, a sample of the beans um, into the guillotine, you cut them all in half. Um, and then you kind of look at the, the fissures, um, the kind of um, fissures created by the, um, the acidity from the fermentation process and, and look at the color to kind of determine um, when it's ready. Um, over-fermenting and under-fermenting cacao have um, quite um, noticeable, predictable, and impactful <laughs> um, effect. 
Um, so the fermentation, like I said, is kind of the most important um, part of the post-harvest process that gives us um, really high quality cacao that we make chocolate from. Yeah. I'll add that um, the fermentation of chocolate is it's spontaneous fermentation. So it's not um, generally, um, you're not inoculating it. It's just the natural bacteria and yeast that exist in the air, in the boxes, on the farmers, um, kind of natural wine-esque. Huh. So kind of a wild yeast. Yep. Huh. Does that, does that fermentation have a lot to do with why chocolate is so shelf-stable, why it's so well-preserved? Hmm. No, the the shelf stability of chocolate has more to do um, with what's called water activity. Um, so zero or low water activity foods um, are, you know, less or not inclined to introduce mold. Right. Um, it's that's really what affects the shelf life. The fermentation is more. Um, it. Well, that's, I will that's already say, finished by the time it's packaged. Yeah, yeah, by the time we get it, it's fermented. And then after it's fermented, it's dried to remove the um, most of the moisture content of the seed. Yeah. And if we, if we tried to um, ship cacao um, without reducing that moisture content to a certain level, um, it would certainly be moldy by the time we've, um, we've, we've gotten it. And that, that has happened to us. We've had... Um, in like a startup um, cacao origin fermentation project, um, we had some cacao ship that was had too high moisture content and we ended up having to compost. Oh God, I think it was literally like two tons of cacao. It was really tragic. Oh, because it, it, there's so much work to grow, harvest, ferment and dry cacao. Um, it just felt really, really sad. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> Yeah, I guess another thing that that we should probably talk about is also like the, you know, the process of fermentation and how it's how fermented foods as a a, a social access point for people and mm-hmm. how it helps how fermentation helps people, especially people of low incomes, provide and preserve um, their foods and their harvests and their you know their 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 goods. Definitely. In the case of chocolate, um, the, the act of fermentation adds, uh, uh, adds value um, to a com- what's thought of as a commodity. Um, so by, by carefully managing and developing expertise in the methods of fermentation and drying, um, there's, you know, the, 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 the cacao is more valuable than something grown um, in the commodity market that's more made for scale and volume. Um, so by supporting your local craft chocolate companies, wherever you may be, um, they're, it's starting like breweries to be a movement and you're finding local chocolate makers in, in most cities, um, at least here in the States. Um, you're by buying that chocolate, you're supporting higher value paid to cacao producers. Um, so we couldn't do what we do without, um, without that expertise and work on, on the, um, origin side of cacao. And, um, you know, that's kind of, as this craft chocolate market is developing, um, the value chain is evolving to better support cacao producers for good work. Hmm. Um, and you know, there's still a long way to go. There's still a ton of, you know, inequity and, um, imbalance of power in the cacao supply chain. Um, it's, you know, not something that's going to change overnight, but a lot of attention is being paid right now to that issue. And the first step to addressing it is bringing more awareness and more transparency to the supply chain and, um, and the value chain and where, where, um, you know, where things are being valued. Um, so there's still, still a lot of work to be done, but, um, the craft chocolate makers recognize that it's worth paying more money for because we couldn't do what we do without um, the cacao producers undergoing these steps of fermentation to ensure quality 
raw material for us. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Beyond just this conversation of fermentation, you guys are doing a lot of other work around sustainability at French Broad Chocolates. Um, what what are you guys working on now? What's been? I know that you have mentioned that a lot of things have been changing over there and and working towards more sustainable goals. What does that look like for for French Broad? It's a great question, and it's something that it's kind of like a journey that I'm on. Um, we've been working with sustainability as a value since the beginning, um, and the way that looks is sourcing with integrity, creating partnerships with like-minded producers, sustainable packaging, composting and recycling our waste, you know, a lot of initiatives that I feel good about. Um, But recently we started to go through the B Corp recertification process. Um, We're a certified B Corp and that's basically a a third-party certification that assesses a business and their um, their goal is people using business as a force for good. Um, so they measure categories like us, our company as an employer, our company as a community partner, our supply chain, our governance. And it's just a framework to guide us to best practices that do the least harm um, and are, you know, sustainable and honoring people and place. Um, so that's kind of B Corp recap. And so every three years we have to get recertified. And so we have to undergo an updated assessment. And that process, which I was much more involved in this time around, um, really opened my eyes to everything I don't know about sustainability, um, in particular, an area that I was literally Googling terms Um, is in carbon management. And that, like, I just felt so, um, like, fresh and new to the conversation (laughs) and and so excited about all the opportunities that exist to um, do better. And, Hmm. you know, because I'm coming at it from a, a place where I don't really know that much, I just opened myself up to people, to mentors, to guides, Um, And just started calling people and literally saying, like, I don't even know what questions to ask you, but I want to do better with this. And how can you help? And um, that's led me to some really awesome people in our community and great conversations about um, how to approach it. And um, so carbon management has come into focus as something that can really make a difference. Um, Laura Linick is a, a resource in town and a consultant who's been working in sustainability for decades. And um, she's kind of helping me form a, a plan, like a five-year plan in carbon management, um, starting with, you know, like kind of step one, I think is, this is probably a terrible way to say it, but paying for your sins, um, like <laughs> measuring your carbon um, that you're producing as an individual or a company and then paying money um, to offset that, um, which I think most experts see as like just 10% of the solution. But then going further, it's how can we build carbon management into our supply chain and into our business practices and purchasing. Um, So there's tons of opportunity there because um, the carbon that's already in the atmosphere can be stored in, in in the earth. Um, and that can be in soil. And most importantly to my business, it can be stored in plants. Um, so if we can get support in helping our um, cacao farmers and producers um, plan their farms that keep carbon um, stored and um, and keep the farm productive and so that they're you know, making money. So it supports, you know, the people, it supports the land. Um, it supports people who want to eat chocolate. It kind of is good for everyone. Um, that's kind of the exciting world that I'm just kind of in square one and two on and, and learning about. And you just went and checked out one of these farms, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so 
Laura works with an organization or is just founding an organization with a couple of other rock stars in our community, Mari Stewart and Meredith Lee, called Carbon Harvest. And their idea, their, I mean, she literally is the one who introduced this idea to me of storing carbon in plants. Um, they're working in our local community to support um, carbon farming practices in Western North Carolina, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, but we're, what we're talking about is how to apply these principles into cacao agriculture, where we're buying um, our ingredients. Um, it just seems like a, a better, um, like a more meaningful way for our business to um, be responsible um, for our part. And so kind of exemplary, I just went to um, the Dominican Republic and visited a cacao producer and, um, you know, they are just, it was mind blowing and inspiring. Um, the, the project is actually, it's a reserve and it's a, a thousand acre bird sanctuary and it's reforesting land in the Dominican um, to support a a rare migratory bird that travels between um, the Northeastern U.S., including flies through North Carolina, and um, to the, Dominic the Dominican Republic every year. And so the project is, um, it's reforcing this land and it's being supported by the cacao business. So it was just such a like mind change to have this, um, this, conservation project being supported by business rather than a business that also has this side project. Um, so that kind of perspective change was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, additionally, the founder, um, Dr. Charles Kirchner, he, um, he works in carbon credits as well. So he set up a 20 year project that incentivizes local landowners and farmers in the Dominican Republic to preserve their land. Um, huh. So basically they get a check every year for not cutting down trees, yeah. um, which is just another way to approach sustainability is, is incentivizing conservation. Um, so I was able to be there for a ceremony in which they handed out the checks and it was just, again, like, oh, heart opening um, to, um, you know, look these farmers and landowners in the eye and hear them talk about how we're connected and how we they need us and we need them and we all need this bird and we all need to work together to protect our land um, it was just really meaningful and deep in a way that I was um, pleasantly surprised and I'm excited to support um, but it's just one example of you know a business that um, is trying to approach conservation and carbon management um, within the, the business model. Um, so, you know, that, that inspires me to think about our piece and how we can, um, you know, be more responsible for, um, for our work, and yeah. our, our part of climate change. That was John talking with French Broad Chocolates co-owner, Jail Skeffington. For more information on French Broad Chocolates and their practices, or to get your hands on some of their chocolate, visit FrenchBroadChocolates.com. Peace.
So John, you work in the wedding industry, essentially. Um, you, yeah. you cater a lot of weddings. You have seen a lot of different traditions and a lot of events. What was something that has stuck out to you or something that was probably the most unique for you? Yeah. I mean, I pick up wedding gigs on the weekends all the time, just catering gigs and cocktail gigs. And uh, this one time we got hired to cater an Indian wedding that was taking place in three different cities over the course of 14 days in three different countries. Wow. And they wanted to be in Asheville for part of it. And so they booked out the Arboretum and they booked out the trails of the Arboretum. So they had catering companies come in from all over the country and set up food booths like a street festival throughout the trails of the Arboretum. And so you'd just be walking through these trails with all these string lights hung overhead. And there was a band that was unplugged playing all this like kind of Bollywood style music and they would be dancing around in the crowd (laughs) moving through and they had speakers set up all around. So no matter where you went, you could hear the music. And then every now and then the band would come through and everyone would start dancing in the, in the line with wherever it was. But the coolest thing about that wedding, I mean, they had the crazy intro where they carry them in and this like Mm -hmm. cart and stuff. But then when it came for the dances, you know how normally like in America we would have the father of the bride dancing with the bride and yeah. the you know mother yeah. dancing with the son and whatever what they do instead is they had these beautiful orchestrated dances where all of the bridesmaids would dance together and all the groomsmen would dance together and they told the story through dance of how the couple met and got together and it was like Bollywood style dances. It was this huge production. And they all had it like synchronized and choreographed out. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It was it was awesome. And I was like, man, that is a tradition I just d- would never have known existed if I hadn't worked this one wedding. Yeah, I just think it's absolutely incredible how there are all these beautiful wedding traditions that are so surprising that we know nothing about that happen in our backyards or all around the globe. Yeah. And I just love learning about those and getting a glimpse into those different lives. It's so special. Yeah. So when one of our previous contributors, DC journalist Kate Ozipak, was helping her family prepare for her sister's wedding, she wanted to tell us about how they pay special attention to a tradition of their own. It's the Pittsburgh cookie table. Here's Kate reading her own story. Maybe we should get another folding table? How high should we stack these cookies? What time do they need to be delivered to the hotel again? Can you bring the baby outside so he doesn't knock over the cookies? And the dog too? Those are just some of the things said in the chaos of cookie assembly before my sister's wedding in June. My family put together 205 boxes of cookies for her guests. We had traditional chocolate chip cookies, sugar cookies iced in my sister's pale blue wedding color, raspberry shortbread cookies, and dozens of other favorites before my sister's big day. Typically, with weddings, we just put cookies on display trays once we get to the venue. But due to COVID, this wedding was different. We were tasked with boxing everything beforehand. I had the duty of watching my one-year-old nephew, making sure he wasn't in the way. I spent about an hour and a half making sure he didn't trip anyone or knock over the stacks of cookie boxes. We piled six high. It was exhausting. A lot of, don't touch that, and come check this out. We also stole a few cookies to snack on ourselves. How does this cookie business manage to all come together? The way we organize it in our family is that one person becomes a point of contact and arranges all the cookie baking and transportation to the venue. For the last wedding, my sister Annie did it for the sister getting married, Meg, and Annie loves to bake and ended up making around 50 dozen cookies herself. I honestly don't know how she did it with a one-year-old. Let's just say my nephew learned the word done from the oven beeping so many times. My Aunt Lorraine contributed her famous melt-in-your-mouth gingerbread cookies in the shape of brides and grooms. My sister Beth made buckeyes, which is another unique-to-the-area tradition that looks like actual buckeye nuts. And my mom made her signature raspberry shortbread sandwich cookies. Mom always says she'll never make them again, 
but she inevitably pulls out the ingredients and spends hours putting the jam on the cookies and making sure the sandwiches are perfectly aligned. They're too good not to make, especially for a wedding. Those are just some of the recipes made on my family's side. Have you ever been to a wedding in Pittsburgh? You see, every wedding venue in the city includes room for a cookie table. The Pittsburgh cookie table is a tradition dating back decades. My family gladly continues the tradition at our weddings, making dozens of recipes passed down from generation to generation. My other sister, who married in July 2019, had so many cookies she needed an entire room. The cookie areas are always very personal to my family. In that cookie room back in 2019, we made sure to have a framed photo of my grandma. She was the one who taught my siblings and me how to bake her almond extract sugar cookies. She made cookies for my parents' wedding, my uncles' and aunts' and cousins' weddings too. I still remember her standing behind me, hands on mine, encouraging me to roll out the dough with lots of muscle. Some say the cookie table tradition was the product of immigrants. Those with Italian and Polish backgrounds often claim it as theirs. Many cookies that are baked at weddings do have immigrant origins. My own family makes a pizzel recipe from my Italian great-grandmother, who I'm named after. My dad typically takes care of those using a pizzel maker that was my grandmother's. If you're wondering what a pizzel is, they're a type of Italian waffle cookie. Last year, I finally learned how to use that pizzel maker under the watchful eye of my father. Let's just say it takes some time to get the exact amount of dough right. It was fun learning the machine as my dad and I drank Manhattan cocktails together. There wasn't much knowledge widely published on Pittsburgh cookie tables until recently. At weddings, we all just took it as a given until we would move away for college. We'd attend out-of-town friends' weddings and we couldn't fathom why they too didn't have mountains of cookies at their wedding. The cookie table was a Pittsburgh staple at many local church events, PTA meetings, and neighborhood card games dating back at least 100 years ago. Many have said the wedding cookie table may have stemmed from these neighborhood cookie displays as Depression-era cost-saving on pricey wedding cakes. Oh, and if you're wondering what happens to cookies that are burned or perhaps missing a key ingredient, we end up eating them. Even my dyed pink Rice Krispie treats that ended up smushed into a giant ball as I traveled by plane to my brother's wedding were eaten privately by my family. I endured many jokes from my siblings about how they ended up looking like ground meat. I'm getting married myself this October and I'm excited to see how my cookie table turns out. I know my family is relieved that we don't have to box up cookies like we just did in June. Putting them on trays is like seeing your painting displayed. Baking is an art after all. I know it's fun for my relatives to boast that they made a certain cookie that ends up being popular at a wedding. I'll leave you with this blurb from an Etsy frame photo called the Pittsburgh Cookie Table that I think sums up the tradition perfectly. The cookie table is as much of the Pittsburgh culture as Heinz Ketchup and Primani Brothers. Many outsiders don't see the need for cake and cookies, but we know you need both. The cookies are homemade by mothers, sisters, aunts, cousins, and friends because the cookie table is a true gift of love. No one knows the exact origin of the tradition, which has been exported to other parts of Pennsylvania and surrounding states. In Pittsburgh, people don't ask, how was the wedding? They ask, how are the cookies? The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by The Coral, Men I Trust, Trey Burt, Evan Wright, Steve Gunn, Stefan Remble, John Bryan, Nathan Johnson, and Paul Chambers. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.